where do the dead belong in the world of the living? For this newest spawn, moments of peace never come. His memories are fragments of the life he once had. For a hellspawn, memories replay his soul's own personal hell. Hey, you gonna have to speak up, Al. One of you. The following contains strong language, violence, and nudity. It is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. I broke into comic books uh, collecting when I was about 16, and then and then I professionally when I was about 23, and then I got to do you know Hulk, Bruce Banner, and I got to do a little bit of Batman, Bruce Wayne, and, and I got to do Spider-Man. It sort of made my career, Peter Parker, and and it and it struck me after a while that everybody was just sort of that that good-looking white guy that you see in all the jeans models, just, it's the white guy, it was, there was a stereotype to it. And I always wanted to do this scene, it struck me as odd, and I, I, I always wanted to do this scene with Spider-Man, I never got to because I ended up moving on to our own company, where you have the stereotype. You've got the Wall Street guy, of course he's white, uh, in a nice sort of Armani suit, and then he gets mugged by the guy, the black guy from the Bronx, of course, we'll play all the stereotypes. And then he screams, and boom, 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 here comes the hero Spider-Man. He comes down there, and he webs up the mugger. And just as uh, the Wall Street guy's walking away, he, he says, Oh, thanks, Spidey, and I'm glad you got that. And he, and he says his epitaph that, uh, uh, about the black man. And I, and I wanted Spider-Man to go, and take that Wall Street guy against the wall. Because he's covered from head to toe, unlike Batman. He's covered from head to toe, and go, poof. What color do you think I am underneath this, underneath this mask? And just for a moment go, why has nobody ever asked the question? I mean, you know, the stories were always Peter Parker, not Peter Parker, but Spider-Man, the villain, Jane Jonah Jameson made him the bad guy in the news. But nobody asked, what's his nationality, right? Is he a terrorist? Is he a Muslim? Is he, I mean, nobody asked about anything. We just assumed he was just that traditional, standard, white, good-looking dude that was there. So... At that point, I, I, I had the idea, I go, could I actually create a character that is a minority? But the first thing I do, essentially, in issue one, which I do, and I, is I rip off the skin. I get rid of the thing that basically makes them different, which is the pigmentation on the skin. We'll rip it across. And could I, over time, make people forget about the skin color? And to some degree, it worked, because years later, I'd be in... Texas or Alabama or something doing a signing and people go, you know, guys that we would call rednecks would come up and go, oh, I love Spawn. He's my favorite hero. And I go, you, you remember he's a black guy, right? And, and they go, oh. and they look at their buddy going, oh, 
We did forget about that. Right? I mean, because because I because I I never wanted the 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 minority superheroes were like Black Panther and Luke Cage, and then there were some others from some uh, um, you know smaller companies, and they made the the color of their skin a point. I didn't want it to be a point. I wanted it to be a non-issue. Why couldn't a guy who had a different pigmentation do the same heroic deeds, have the same wants and needs as us privileged white people? And the answer is they do and they can. We just forget about it sometimes. Welcome back, all my fiends and ghouls to uh, Spawnometer. You were so you had such conviction of what we were doing, and then you're like, "Gee, did we just read these Spawn comics for fucking Marvel superheroes or some shit?" I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of quizzical there. Yeah, I'm a little quizzical well, because the cover kind of caught me off guard. Well, let's talk about the cover. I just hear Kermit singing about rainbows. I know, right? It's so yeah, whimsical. I saw that, I'm like, I just I, I picture Kermit slowly going on a, a little boat singing about rainbows as like Spawn is staring at him, waiting to kill him. Or I mean, it's a cool cover. It's different. I don't remember ever seeing this cover. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. You just described a Spawn comic. Yeah, uh, it's it's a sunny. I mean, it's actually yeah, it's, it's about as sunny as in the Muppet movie. It's all, everything's like orangey hues, and he's like sitting on a log, or no, not a log, but like a tree branch over a bayou, and you know, there's like lily pads and shit. It's like really bizarrely happy, you know. And he's got his mask off. I just want to know when did Spawn ever visit Louisiana? I know, right? What what does this have to do with the fucking I think comic he's in, we read in Spawn Alley, which is in New York? Are there swamps in well, besides the political ones, but are there? Any swamps in like New York in the DC area? I'm assuming that there was uh, like a, a swamp thing crossover plan that never came about or something. That's the only rationale I could think. Uh, that or Capullo just did this on his own, and somebody was like, "That's great, let's put that on a cover." And uh, it I, had nothing I, to do I with just anything. Think he was like, "I've seen every cover, and it's always been a city landscape. Let's go nature." Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely Full nature. It, it absolutely stands out. It's got nothing to do with a goddamn thing. It's got nothing to do with the story we're going to read. But I, I definitely will remember that cover forever. Oh yeah, no. When I first looked at the cover, I was like, "Am I reading it like a?" Pair Parody comic? Like, is this like a parody comic? I'm like, it says Spawn. Is this Spoon? You know? Yeah. After the Kermit cover. Dedicated to Dave Sims again. Uh, Dave Sim, I still think, writer of one of the best issues of Spawn, but obviously that's a bone of contention with other people. Some people hate that issue of Spawn more than any other. Definitely inspires reaction. Yeah. And actually, uh, Todd McFarlane recently beat his record. Well, to a degree. He's now the longest running independent creator-owned comic book of all time. But since Dave Sim actually drew all of his, it's actually... Actually, Eric Larson going after that record, but Spawn is technically the longest running now consecutive series by a creator owned by its creator. Okay. Uh, so let me just give a little bit of background because I I want to lead into a brief discussion. This issue came out on December the 26th, 1994. That was about a week after Angela number one, which will be relevant later on. The same month, X Men: Age of Apocalypse launched, which was of course still considered one of the great X Men arc. I think Newsarama recently did a top 10 X Men stories, and it was terrible as usual. It's a terrible. It's a news barama list but age of apocalypse was on it and i don't think anybody would contest that this was also the month that bruce wayne was finally fully back as batman as announced by an all black embossed cover and uh, the azrael solo series also launched the same month but the thing i really want to talk about is black people so i went ahead and looked at all the comic books that came out in december of 94 and if it wasn't the peak moment in the comic book book industry for african-american representation it's got to be somewhere close to it and i want to tell you like a list of the books that were coming out that month either ongoing series or miniseries 
you had Bishop, Black Lightning, Blade the Vampire Hunter, Night Thrasher, The Prowler, Shadow Hawk, Shadow Man, Steel, War Machine. The entire Milestone line was still going at that point. Plus you had Night Watch, The Knockoff of Spawn. I'm not sure there's ever been that many books about African-American heroes in the history of comic books. And oh. certainly within that span of a year or so, that's got to be like the peak ever. And I have to think that Spawn contributed to that by being the number one book in the country for the previous two plus years. Okay. That moment in time is a bit of a blur for me. So what you might have a finer point on is uh, what went down in this issue. Why don't you give us a quick synopsis? I didn't read all the Mal Bolger parts. You didn't miss anything. That was, uh, it felt like he overcorrected on people making fun of his dialogue and like story writing. So he's like, I'm really going to get really descriptive and about power and sin. And so I got through about one or two bars and I was like, yeah, I'm good. But we are introduced to the character's name. Shit. Is, uh, uh, you talking to about Fred Barnett? Fred, Freddie Barnett, we should say? Yeah, Freddie Barnett. He's angry at his attorney because he's lost custody of his adopted daughter. He's lost his wife, I think, 15 months prior to that. His life is spiraling out of control. He goes before the judge and the judge basically says, we're taking away this child, even though he says the child wants to stay with him. They're taking away the child and putting her in a foster home because they feel that that would be a better conditions for her. So he's crushed by this. He feels like there's nothing that can help him. And of course, I'm assuming all of my ball just parts are supposed to somewhat feed into that story. I'm not sure. Did you read them? I did read them. It's just more Malbolgia telling you the story of Spawn. This was one of the first issues after all the fucked up numbering and the irregular release schedule throughout the 1994 year. And I guess Todd was like, I gotta tell these people what's going on in the book again. And so he spent the majority of the book telling us what that was happened. amazing. That was amazing McFarlane, by the way. <laughs> well, I thought you. he was in the room. <laughs> so he, he wasted most of this book telling us what happened in previous books, which is something he'd already done repeatedly over the course of those issues. So that's why I told you just don't read the Malbolgia stuff. Okay. There's there's really nothing there. So for the most part, we can just focus on the, what was in the, the script itself. Well, this did feel kind of like a jumping on point if you haven't been keeping up with it. Because, I mean, he, he just kind of bitches and whines about everything we've read for the last 25 issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while the spider's crawling on him and talking about the mafia and the hitman and the boys in the alley, how he's no longer hiding in the alley now. Like a dog, now he's, you know, he runs the alley. What is this character's name that pops up? Uh, which one do you mean? Father Christmas. That's oh, right. okay. The Count is what they're calling him the initially. And I, I, that didn't so who's last... Cog? Is that that's, just in the movie? Nope. That's he's he, they At the end of the issue, they make a point of letting you know that he is the Count Nicholas Cogliostro. It's not like this was news or anything. I'm pretty sure they'd already given him that name previously. I mm-hmm. think that maybe Todd McFarlane was trying to make the Count be the word, the, the name that was going to be sticking for him. But most of us know Cog or Cogliostro from the TV show. It's the same dude, though. Okay. Who is that? He's historical. I did not research for him. He was created by Neil Gaiman for his issue with debut of Angela. Apparently, I think he was maybe Cagliostro or like there was some kind of spelling glitch that made him copyrightable because he wasn't exactly the same as the historical figure. But I think he was some kind of alchemist from hundreds of years ago. Because I thought he was Merlin from like the Excalibur stories and shit. <laughs> what, the whole I time? That's he was going to end up being. Kind of like, you know, how you got uh, Etrigan fused with Jason Blood because mm-hmm. Merlin. So I thought, oh, they're kind of, it's their take on Merlin. But I guess I was wrong. I know you were born reading over the years was dip in and leave again and then you watch the TV show did they never the explain to, yeah the movie sure did they ever explain anywhere in the stuff that you read Cog's whole deal or has he just always been the dude who shows up and exposits with Spawn to you to me that's him Okay, I want to say I read something or where he was alluded to be something like that like a magical character from well, history I don't want to yeah that's absolutely true that's absolutely that's okay. where, where, who Deal Gaming was borrowing from I know something about who Cog turns out to be but I don't want to spoil it in case that's yeah, something. Exactly. I, I don't remember at all. I yeah. might have 
I've never read it. I don't know. I mean, again, I, I like you said, I dipped my toe into the Spawn comics every so often. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he does give you a little myself. bit of backstory over the, the story, at least in terms of how he knows things about Spawn. So we'll, we'll get into that, though, I expect. Well, they kind of allude that he he was a Spawn or maybe an escape Spawn. or I don't know. That, and that's the impression I, I'm under. I, I, so I, a, it's not a spoiler there. I, yeah, I think that he was supposed to be a, a, a prior generation Spawn who broke the rules and basically preserved his power so that he wouldn't tap out and go back to hell tried to fight the forces of heaven and hell he fought the law and the law won and so now he just sort of like hangs back saves what juice he's got left for himself tries to work with the next generation of spawn i think it like one of the fields is getting guidance or something yeah i think he's trying to use al to take his place to do the work continue the work that he tried to start and failed to accomplish okay i i feel like it's that that's kind of what we're supposed to go with yeah agreed and he does make that reference to 400 pounds of necroplasm and then in a later issue they mention it being closer to 500 pounds but it, it seems to back up your theory there really isn't much in the way of meat there he's probably almost entirely composed of this ethereal substance but you know apparently it's got the same consistency of concrete or the density of concrete so you're pretty much right on from what you were talking about in uh, issue 24 I believe so then he doesn't really breathe now, they didn't go into that but it wouldn't shock me it seems like your theory is panning out ah, cool and so okay. the, the other part so, with Cog is he also oh. mentions that basically what they're all working towards is Armageddon that the intention is for Spawn to be one of the generals of hell that's going to march on the gates of heaven and uh, start the war that ends all of existence. That's what they allude to the, in this one. The same plot point that's been hammered into us, what, the last 25 issues? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so Spawn is in his alleyway. What was me? What was me? And Eric shows up? Yeah. Have we ever... I don't think we've been introduced to Eric, have we? No, but I, I thought it was supposed to be like an Eric Larson. Like, does he drop the names of the other creators? Yeah, Eric with a K isn't super common, so I, I think that yeah, that's a I thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, not, I've never met a lot of Eric's with a K. And he looks kind of like Sam, though, doesn't he? Like mm, in the face? No, no, man. Kind of generic. I don't really see any distinction. What I'd say this is that Eric looks like Jim Belushi slimmed down, and then Sam looks like him when he swole up. So you're saying he looks like Jane Belushi? I think James he looks a little like Jim Belushi? Belushi, yeah. Okay, I can go with that. Eric introduces Spawn to Freddy, because Freddy's coming to him to make a wish upon a star, because he needs help. And so they're there to rub his uh, Spawn lamp to see if he can do something for Freddy, because Freddy heard that Spawn helped those who were poor, and Freddy's poor, and he needs help. And Spawn's kind of a dick. He rightly says, basically, I'm not a fucking social worker. What the hell do you want me to do? I'm an agent of Satan. You know, what the fuck you want yeah. from me? What am I supposed to fucking do about child custody case? You didn't properly rub the lamp, apparently. I thought that was really weird. Hey, my buddy's having problems with the courts. Can you show up in his court hearing as a witness? And so Spawn kind of shoos him away and tells Eric never to do it again. As he's walking off, Merlin there's telling him he's being a little harsh. Everyone thinks you're evil, but these guys think you're good. You provide hope to these lost souls and then you know we have some more Malbolja talkie talkie and then we get to where I thought this was weird so Spawn doesn't have really control over people teleporting them apparently like yeah, people okay. can just kind of snap their fingers and he turns into fucking Slimer from the Ghostbusters and like <laughs> flies away yeah it's definitely the secret of the ooze going on as he's yeah. fl- being flung like a little sperm act just flying away and he lands it's supposed to be a pocket universe between Earths or some shit like that like we get a real weird dimensional thing but I gotta admit I really do like that close-up of Spawn's face. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. I don't know. It just, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool looking. Like, you can finally see the shoelace up close and the teeth and it looks really cool. And he's introduced to... Gabrielle. Who I feel is upper management when it comes to angels. Seems that way, yeah. She's the maybe, one... Maybe if, middle management, you know. If you remember HR. back to uh, Angela's introduction in, in Spawn number 9, 
Nine. She's the one that Angela had to go to for a hunting permit to go after Spawn. Okay, so middle management. She's talking to Spawn about, you know, have a seat. There's some really good wine here. I ordered strawberries to watch my weight. A lot of those kind of jokes. She asked him if he remembers Angela, which of course he does. He talks about their encounter. She does ask him more about the staff that she had or the lance. And he talks about how he touched it and it teleported him. But she said, no, it did something like it. It's did it supercharge him or some shit or. Yeah, I'm and going so, I'm going with and some shit. Yes. <laughs> well, the whole thing is she wants to know where the lance is because mm-hmm. apparently because she lost. That's a big no, no. Because mm-hmm. she alludes to that. You know, she can't wiggle her way out of this one. And then basically snaps her fingers and he's reformed into Slimer and sent back to Earth. So he, he kind of gets punked by these powers above him. He's, well, I think it's worth noting that both times that we've seen that happen to Spawn, it's been related to angelic intervention and, and one of the higher up angels, too. And so we get to know, you know, Merlin tells a little bit more about himself. One thing I want to mention, too, is Mel Bolgia is aware of them jerking Spawn around. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be some element of consent on his part to allowing his potential general to be more Mel Bolgia talky talky. And then Spawn, apparently he can get drunk now. Or is it one of those things where he pretends he, he thinks he's drunk? So his body reacts to it as though he is drunk. I, I think he must he doesn't be, have a stomach. Yeah, I, I think it gets back to the whole necroplasm thing yeah. where he's either, like you say, acting drunk just because he's giddy or maybe he's drunk on power or maybe he can just like will his neck rights or whatever to allow him to get drunk. I don't know. I feel like if Spawn would have to be imbibing something effective for him to be acting that way because he's such a fucking sad bitch that he, you would need the booze to just disinhibit him. Yeah. I don't know. He's just kind of like drinking hooch with his buds and starts telling about the story how, you know, the violator, he gave some of the violator his power and then the violator actually gave it back to him. Again, just a rehash of another issue. I think one of the reasons why we're getting so much recapping is that this issue is a lead in to the Angela mini series, okay. uh, which is released like a week before this issue. And then it's also showing where Violator rests in spawn continuity. And that series wrapped up five months earlier, but we now we know the continuity is all sorted out now. Okay. So next thing we're, we see Eric again, and Eric's upset with Spawn, telling him you could have helped. And Spawn is, I'm assuming... He's like, who are you again? <laughs> Who's this yeah. Eric guy, you know? Oh, no, well, he's talking about like, are you talking about the blue face guy? And he goes, no, Freddy, him. And he throws him the paper, and apparently Freddy had committed suicide because of the whole custody battle. And I'm not sure how that's, like, again, Spawn is not a social worker. He's not an attorney. Like, I think it comes down to he, sh- he should have tried. And it, what it kills, is he going to do? I know. What the fuck is he going to do? You know, I, maybe he's got a folder. Is there is there a folder oh, that's going to help in this case? Folder. <laughs> not another folder. No, not the folder technique. Yep. I just, it felt really weird. Like that. It, it, it felt like they did sense. all the recapping first and then figured out what the story was going to be in between all the recapping. Okay, I get it. So this was just a, a story to kind of pull it along while we're doing the entire recap. It seems that way to me. Yeah. And also, f- this is the same fucking plot as the last issue is the same shit where some guy shows up wanting help from spawn spawn refuses to help them some bad shit happens spawn feels bad about it and then wants to try to make amends but in this instance it's too late i do think that it's really hammering the point that maybe al simmons just isn't a very good person and and like i was really hate reading this issue i just every turn of the page is like i don't need any of this shit this is not moving the story along at all but i think part of it is just that i'm trying to hold al simmons to a moral code that doesn't apply to him because the fact is he was a government assassin who was sent to hell and had to make a deal with the devil so why would i expect him to be doing good deeds the only downside of that is as i do expect the protagonist of the book i'm reading to find some shit to do besides fucking twiddle his fucking thumbs for issue after issue after issue of this goddamn fucking book okay man you really didn't like 26 <laughs> well see i read all those goddamn mel Bolger captions so that's the big okay. fucking problem and, and all it was is mel Bolger like i'm gonna keep fucking with spawn
on until he's so fucking blue that he's willing to do what the fuck I want him to do. That's a really good summation of like hundreds and hundreds of words across numerous pages written by fucking Todd McFarlane. <sighs> I'm telling you, man, Todd overcorrected. He, what he was, he, he got those fucking Alan Moore scripts and he's reading those scripts. He's like, fuck, man, I, I want to do like this. I want to write like this. And he's trying to write like that. And he <laughs> can't fucking black. do it. He can't write. You're not fucking Alan Moore, man. Quit trying to be Alan Moore. Shit. I'm sorry. It's just, it's such a fucking chore getting through this particular patch of the run. So I'm just, I'm. You do a, a magnificent Todd. I swear to God, I felt Todd was here. I've seen, I've seen enough documentary. I thought Todd was here. <laughs> you know, talk about how hard his life was and how no one gives him a shot and how he makes everything move and, you know, he turns water into wine on the weekends and Should walks be, in the sky when he's bored. I, I know they were doing a Todd before documentary. Did you watch that shit? It sounds like you just watched some that shit. It. Oh, yeah? So I watched some of it. I, I watched a really good one about, um, image mm-hmm. Layfield is kind of an asshole like they, they talked about them and their thing and Todd kind of came off as like everyone else had the idea but Todd took it and ran with it and then made it like his mm-hmm. like it was his idea and it was kind of like well, it was all these other guys too but Todd is always you know when he's out there it's kind of like I did this I made this happen he's the Todd father as they like yeah. to call him so it's kind of like yeah so I saw that one and I, I've seen another little mini documentary they did about him but yeah uh, the one we're talking about the new one I've seen it pop up but I just haven't had time to watch it because I just don't want to hear Todd talk more about his struggle i mean he makes some cool figures i saw some of his new figures i mean they're pretty cool he's elevated the dc toy game so side note it was just a huge recap issue i was reading it i'm like i know all this shit why am i reading this yeah so uh, yeah it was, it was disappointing except for the cover great cover <laughs> when you're beautiful man you start a war and then sell arms to both sides whoever wins you're his new best friend you have your directives it's not working for me the alley location doesn't make sense Let's get something clear right now. I own you. I'm not interested in how you think things should work. Understood? And Special Ops has reconned the target for you. Chapel, did you hear what I said? Tonight. Bloodstrike number two was three months late, and number three took nearly two more months. So they definitely had some issues, and that wrapped up the back and forth between Brigade and Bloodstrike for the Blood Brothers crossover. And it might also explain why you had a mostly new creative team starting with the fourth issue. Keith Giffen took over story and layouts. The fourth issue came out exactly two weeks after the final image issue of Trenchard's Ship. So his book gets canceled, but he's still working on extreme titles. The art was now by a fellow named Chris Alexander. He's previously done pinups in the Youngblood Yearbook and Supreme Number 4. We've been critical of those pinups. I think his work was better here, but in all honesty, it was journeyman at best. Given must have liked him well enough, though, because Alexander got work penciling the Division 13 miniseries at Dark Horse after this. He also did a few fill-ins for Top Cow and Marvel books, including a single issue of Wolverine, and that was pretty much his entire career. Do you want to talk a little bit about the artwork on the three Keith Giffen written issues? Very image. Yeah, I but I mean, say. at least there's backgrounds and shit. I don't think it's flashy enough to really feel like image. <laughs> there's a lot of bullshit. Is, is, that, is that your lip tester? It has to have backgrounds now? Yeah, I mean, they, they actually do have settings and backgrounds, and the characters relate to one another appropriately, reasonably so. But there's also a lot of extraneous lines that don't add up to much. Um, so it functions, but it's not going to get your dick hard. No, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. I mean, it, it moves the story along. That's all that matters. This was the one issue. I remember they show Canadian Wolverine standing on the curb, and this guy's talking about beating his girlfriend, and he goes all fucking psycho murder on both of them. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really fucked up. Cool twist on it. I mean, he literally rips his head off. 
And I didn't realize Image was so uh, gory at the time. Image was violent, but this book became notorious because especially oh, for once the gore. It, yeah, it got really notorious for the gore to the point where retailers were wanting to return issues because they felt that they'd exceeded the age appropriateness with these titles because it was just so violent. I'm telling you, dude, it's very Faust, man. Like, I'm looking at this and I'm just like, there's a scene where Canadian Wolverine is ripping off the guy's head and they have the big old rip and they're showing where the muscles and stuff are being extended and blood shooting. I'm just like, holy shit, dude, this was on a shelf next to a fucking Incredible Hulk and a Superman comic? I'm just really surprised that this book shared real estate with other books of that nature because that's definitely gory as shit. I, I'm surprised you didn't put this behind your counter. These issues of Blood Strike, I think were before I was a retailer. I, I, I came okay. in in 94. So I, I think I, I think it was uh, probably done with the Keith Giffen stuff by the time I came in as a retailer. Okay. But this stuff was put out there with regular books though, right? Yeah, yeah. They didn't, it didn't like get black bagged or anything like that. But I just so remember... So was the selling point for this the gore factor? I think that that was maybe the selling point to Keith Giffen. I'm not sure if it was the selling point to readers because again, retailers had some issues with the... Thing, I remember reading about this when I was first coming in as a retailer was other retailers were very unhappy with the level of violence in the stories. Okay. So what else happens in the issue? Canadian Wolverine kills some guys. Bloodstrike is doing this research on his team. Now, I gotta admit, the scene with Foreplay was pretty cool where she's at a store, these two guys come in, rob it. I'm assuming they're alluding at raping her? Yeah, and they think that she's pregnant, so they're like, and you have never done a pregnancy before. Like, that's kind of like, hey, have you ever banged a pregnancy? And I remember thinking like, fuck, dude, I read the other stuff first. I read Zero first. So I was like, okay, that's pretty gory. We get to here, and I'm just like, Bloodstrike was definitely a different animal in the Image universe <laughs> in its own. I don't remember any other book at the time being this gory or just not giving a fuck. I want to say I remember reading these, but I can't say they stuck with me. But I remember, I kind of vaguely remember this scene, because I remember thinking that was kind of cool where she had the other two arms underneath the coat, and they whip out with a gun, and she just starts blasting dudes away. And I mean, she blows one guy in half, and the other guy, I think she shoots him with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, at least 15, 20 times. There's like bullets going through his body. And you see her two arms. She's holding like this little mini Gatling gun and a laser. Blood all over the floor. She turns around to the cash register guy. He passes out. She's like, great. I did love the line where she's talking about alloways and rooftop, the story of my life when she's trying to escape. I like one of the things she was at the convenience store to do is she was buying concealers so that she would look less undead. Yes. Did you notice there's a scene where Cabot is visiting with Shogun and Night of the Living Dead is playing on the TV? I never noticed that. I think Giffen really leaned hard into the zombiness. I think he's the one who came up with that sort of Return of the Living Dead angle where it's got that punk rocky vibe to it where it's zombies but like a whole different quite caliber of zombie. And now you can finally talk about Tag. Oh yeah, here we go. And now we return you to the late, late showing of the of the Living Dead. Okay. And so yes, now Tag, that one was an interesting one. So foreplay kills a guy. Da 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 da. Uh, Cabot is still doing research on Deadlock because he really does feel there's something wrong with Deadlock. They're not communicating. Tag, I don't know, man. Like, would you say she's a serial rapist? Set the scene. She goes to a club. She gets tipsy. She flirts with a guy. They head back to her place. The guy's kind of alluding, "Oh, wait till I get you to the bed." And she's playing kind of like the ditzy blonde they get in there she tags him and freezes him and then throws him on the bed takes off her clothes and i believe the line is uh oh i do hope you'll forgive me for being so forward but even the dead have needs and she technically rapes him i guess not because when she she raises her dress up you can see all her dead flesh Mm -hmm. and she's laughing the whole time Mm -hmm. and i remember thinking dude that's pretty fucked up that's a pretty fucked up way to use your powers there's actually a movie coming out in a few months called promising young woman with carrie mulligan it's similar to Hard Candy. She goes to bars. She pretends to be drunk. She lets the so-called nice guys pick her up. And then it turns out she's stone sober and she apparently does some sort of violent revenge against these nice guy rapists, dude. There's a 
cable channel that's devoted to nothing but little short movies. And they had one that was from a few years ago. There was a, the same basic premise is they act like they're drunk, bring the guy back to their place, and then they fucking brutalize him because he's a rapist. So clearly that was, at least in some way, the plan here with this dude, Max. She turns the tables on him, she tags him, and she rapes him. It was fucked up what he was going to do, but it definitely hits you because you don't get to see this dynamic very often, whereas the girl raping the guy. Yes, but we learn later there's a consequence to what she's doing. Yeah, and that's going to be a later issue, so let's hold off on that just a bit. Now, we get back to the team having a meeting, and again, Foreplay is kind of an asshole. She smacks Shogun. The part I remember is when they see Tag the next morning, Forearm's like, Little Miss Goody Two Shoes herself, sell any Girl Scout cookies. It gives you the impression that, because she's the blonde girl, that she comes across as being real clean cut and shit, when, in fact, she's going off and and catching that D. Yeah, and, (laughs) yeah, we'll talk about that later on some of the other issues. But at this time, they're getting a meeting. Abbott wants the entire team together. He's pissed off because Deadlock is not there. They decide that they're going to body slide him in to the meeting because he's late. And Canadian Wolverine is pissed because I guess he doesn't like being summoned. Well, the way it's written in the story, I don't think he remembers that he's a member of this team. I think he's in his serial killer member of the four mode. Okay. So he's like, who the fuck are you guys to teleport me? I'm going to kill you all. Which actually carries us into issue number five, which arrived two weeks later. So you can see where they're trying to catch up with the schedule after having so many delays. In that issue, Deadlock rips Cabot's tits off. Cabot punches Deadlock's spine out. And then later on, the guys who helped to sew these dudes up basically staple Cavett's nipples back on so they can go on a mission. Bloodstrike team is sent after Supreme on the same month. Which is, a, which is a big fuck up, yeah. Yeah. And this is on the same month that in Supreme's book, Grave had ordered Jason Temple to shut down heavy metal and disassociate Gate from Supreme. So you can see where the government's stopped trying to recruit this guy and are starting to turn on him. Now, if you remember, Bloodstrike actually made a weird early guest appearance in Supreme number three where they were playing crowd control for the press outside Dulles Airport during the hostage situation, which uh-huh. isn't the thing you would have the covert black ops team do, so I don't think they'd figured out what they were doing there just yet. And so ultimately, even though Bloodstrike insists that they're going to lead this hostage rescue mission, Supreme just fucking cucks them, goes in there, kills the fuck out of everybody, but Cabot's like, well, that's what we should have done in the first place. I'm on Team Supreme right now. But now that he's been sent by the government against Supreme, he's not taking it seriously. This is right after Supreme had been having his battles with Thor, and now that he's done with Thor, he's trying to track down the terrorist circle that had attacked Dulles. Bloodstrike catch up with him at a compound in the Colorado Rockies. Okay, you, you need to shut it down, Supreme. We're arresting you. And uh, Supreme doesn't take that well. So Boy, he, his arrogance is so high. I mean... Yeah. So he peels Shogun out of his suit and squeezes his guts until they burst. He halved forearm to two, but only the right side of her arms chopped off. He grabbed Cabot's face like a fucking bowling ball, gouging at his eyes and thumb through the cheek. He punched out Cabot's internal organs then baned his fucking ass. He like gave him the yeah. full bane where he actually splits him in half over his knee and then Tag was the only one she had tried to oh, wait, freeze wait wait you forgot though Tag touched him and thought he, she froze him and it lasted and like a Supreme, second and Supreme just kind of turns around like nothing and just flicks his finger and launches her that's the right. only reason she survived yeah she's the only one who doesn't have major injuries the rest of these guys are torn the fuck up entrails and bones and just all the fucking gore they just spared no fucking detail here uh, yes. and so she gets back just in time to hear Cabot's fucking gnarled face cackle and they'd set up in the previous issue that Cabot seemed like he was in a place where he was like ready to die. He's fucking freaking out and smashing his bathroom and all this shit. And Supreme fucking obliged his ass. And then at the end of the issue, we move the scene to rural Virginia. And it's revealed that the Covenant of the Sword, the, one of the evil groups that appears in Savage Dragon comics, has infiltrated the U.S. government, which has allowed them to help sabotage Bloodstrike by doing shit like sending them against Supreme so they can basically use 
team for their own ends once they get their shit back together again. Yes. Is Image still doing anything with Supreme? Not currently, but the thing about Supreme is I don't think Rob Liefeld owns them anymore. Oh, does uh, Who owns them? I don't know which of the other two people, because they split the extreme properties between three people, and Liefeld okay. was supposed to keep the publishing rights so he could still use them in comics, but other than other media and, and other toys and shit, the other guys are supposed to own them. But I think the rights got even more fucked up, and now Liefeld disowned those characters for the time being because he doesn't seem to have any connection to them. Either he's unwilling or unable to exploit those characters even in comics. Because I would really like to see some, some more Supreme stuff. Absolutely. I totally agree. But unfortunately, Supreme, I don't think, is one of the ones he's got a, uh, any kind of rights to right now or, or isn't exer- exercising those Michelle, rights comics. Michelle, I'm talking to you. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then we move into issue number six, which came out a month later. So they were really popping these books out then. Yeah. You're talking about they caught the first couple of issues that took them five months to get it out. So I, I do think they were trying to you make amends for that. When they show them in the freezer and they're hanging out there like slabs of meat, I remember thinking that's really fucked up. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of members down there that there's other people down there, right? I, I, there's a lot of bodies. I don't think that that's just the blood strikes bodies. So I think there's like there's other characters they could have come up with, I guess. And I do like the two guys talking about how, you know, this I, really gruesome I, work. I, I, how this guy has brought this one female, I think it's foreplay, multiple times, at least a dozen times that he can remember. Well, like you, you said, that there, you, when you're pointing out that there are too many people on the hooks, I think, yeah. the, you know, this is the, the issue where they finally referenced that when you chop off two of Forearm's arms, the replacement arms have to come from somewhere. And I think this is yes, the issue where okay, they reveal yeah. that they're harvesting innocent people's bodies to recombine, to fix these people. So, and so, yeah, so uh, we th- talked about that a little bit earlier because I was thinking, well, are they regenerating them? What's the big deal? I figured, okay, maybe they can regenerate dead tissue. And then jumping ahead, they talk about this serial killer where they're like, oh, no, no, keep the bodies. Foreplay goes through arms like crazy. Yeah. And I'm just so, like, so probably those other people, shit. the meat hooks are the people they're harvesting. Yes. But the fact that their bodies aren't so much their bodies, they're using body parts from people they find. They're not like taking homeless off the streets and shit like that, right? I think that they're, that's pretty much exactly the shit they're doing. Yeah. Okay. I think that's one of the things that they get into both here and in the second of Michelle Fife's brutalist fill-in portions. They're kidnapping people and dismembering them for the Blood Strike Project. This is a dark that, fucking book. Yeah. Oh, no, no. That's what I'm telling you. So much potential in this book. They're bringing back foreplay. They start working on Cabot. But of course, Cabot is giving them a problem because he's fighting it where they usually come back without an issue. He, for some reason, has given them an issue. He breaks out of a case. Well, no, no, no. Now, th- this is unclear. And I wish that they'd done a better job. I think I, I kind of blame the art for this. But sometimes Keith Given can be a, an obtuse storyteller. And I think maybe it just didn't get. Got well, I, I mean, I know what you mean. It's a dream. Yeah, well, no, it's not a dream. I think it's a flashback. I don't. I, I mean, it may be a dream because it does sure? get it does nah, get weird. I, I read it as a dream because you have that scene where when him and uh well don't okay we'll, we'll get to that. In battles. We'll agree to disagree. I think it's a flashback to when Cabot was first resurrected, or it might be a dream version of it with nightmare imagery, or it might be full on dream is what you're asserting. But what happens in that sequence? Uh, well, again, he breaks out of a casing. Which the soldiers they, they make a point of saying to too that the soldiers that were surrounding this, Cabot wasn't the first guy that had gone. One of them was a rookie. Cabot wasn't the first guy to go through this, and the one of the, the veteran guards is like, you know, nothing ever happens. It's a boring cakewalk assignment. And then for the first time, Cabot fucking breaks loose and starts killing people. Yeah. He's almost killing a guy. Battlestone walks up behind a trooper, chokes him out, knocks out his brother. We now see the Covenant. They're discussing their plans for the future. The rebirth program. Tag comes and visits Shogun. That's where Shogun's kind of showing his displeasure with being brought back the way he was. You know, like you said earlier, you know, he didn't sign all the paperwork. I guess where I kind of agree with you where I'm not sure. You say flashback. I say dream. It just doesn't make sense because next thing you know, Battlestone's outside of Cabot's door. There's a trooper talking to him, talking about how that, you know, he's just been sitting there moping the whole time and 
Well, they make a point Stone of mentioning too. The fuck out. Well, they mentioned that they're good. They the plan at the project was to put Cabot on the hot plate, and so I think that's sort of like the crematorium in the Return of the Living Dead movies, where when they need to get rid of one of these zombies, they must have like their own method of cooking them and ending them. And because he's mm-hmm. so unruly and so murderous, they're willing to scratch him. But Battlestone, who has been involved with resurrecting his brother against his brother's wishes, so like Shogun, this is another guy who did not want to be in this project. Battlestone goads him into revealing that he is cognizant of what's going on pushes him to embrace his new reality but in a really morbid way that's the part where i thought it was a dream because as they're battling battlestone was trying to give him a noogie and cobalt is just punching the shit out of him he literally punches him so hard his neck snaps his brother's laughing he begins to punch him against the wall where he's just a bloody not a spot yet i mean his head is you can see where his head is disconnected from the body he's kind of freaking out a little bit he turns around and battle has literally written mom always liked you best and in his own Cabot is screaming Cabot is screaming no but then the next scene you have Cabot in one of those cases Cabot is coming out of the stasis capsule and he's in a rage mode he pops out they're worried he's gonna attack they're gonna sedate him he tells him put away your sedation I'm under control I got it handled that's where I thought it was a dream that he was in the stasis capsule and he dreamt that whole part or was a, he was dreaming the flashback either way yeah uh, I mean uh, potato potato I guess the team comes back together they're being told they have a new mission and they're being introduced to their newest member chapel See, so Kevin, at this when point have they back, already discussed that he's hip positive so yeah this is picking up from young blood strike file and see cabot didn't want to come back from the dead it seemed like he was on it had a death wish which is why they went into supreme's mission half cocked anyway so when they brought him back against his wishes he figured okay well what if i'm coming back i'm gonna come back on my own terms and then he immediately is told well you've lost the leadership of the team chapel's gonna be leading he's been bumped to that team because he's hiv positive they don't think that that reflects well in the young blood it's gonna team. clash with the young blood image especially because they made a point of putting it out in the media that he got the hiv through his promiscuity and so they put him on the black ops team and, and made him the leader since cabin had such a colossal fuck but up i thought they alluded that it was jason Wynn had give it to him yeah jason like Wynn moved a, him was... to the team that's true and, and they he, chapel does call Wynn trying to get off the team in a later issue but that's where Wynn wants him at this point in time no but i thought jason Wynn was they weren't they the ones that gave him hiv because then they say yeah. it was like government made yeah, when was the uh, one who put the dormant uh, HIV in him that he could activate when Chapel acts up? Okay. Chapel's powers just shoots things? I think that he has enhanced abilities. I, I would say we've talked about X-Men, the original team, fairly recently. He's Thunderbird, where okay. he's a little bit stronger, he's a little bit faster, but it's more like... Captain America levels. Captain America comic book levels as opposed to Captain America movie levels. Okay. Maybe, maybe a little stronger than a normal human can possibly be. Maybe a little more resilient, but not like crazy strong or anything like that. But he's definitely a sociopath. Pretty well established in our previous podcast, I would say, yeah. Okay, yeah. Who the fuck are you? Your worst fucking nightmare. Say it. Yeah, we know each other real well. I know where you buried that girl in Guatemala. I even know about that singer in Rio. Don Juan of Killers, you said. You're not him. Why don't you tell me who 
who I am. Simmons? I want you to feel what it's like. Trapped in a box, no light, no air. Suffocating in the darkness and left to rot. leads into issue number seven where the book continues to be on a monthly shipping schedule i think it pretty much stays monthly for the rest of the issues we're going to cover but we've got another new creative team eric stevenson has returned as writer and layout artist which i think is one of the only times he gets that credit keith given is still given story assist so i've seen what happened is he either quit or got fired and they went ahead and continued to use some of his story ideas in this issue but i don't think he's given credit on any of the succeeding issues no not um, the next ones yeah the infinity and operation night strike artist richard ori takes over pencils and the inks are by Danny Meeky and Tim Townsend two very talented inkers Jay Lee provides covers and uh, the first cover is Chapel looking like a total fucking boss Bad Rock is there to hand over Chapel essentially to the team but he also knows with all the shit that's going on in his life right now he's just a time bomb waiting to blow and so he's glad to be rid of him essentially what it seems like but he also we see Chapel going through like this enhanced Hogan's Alley showing off his badass shooting gun skills and yeah. so he's saying you know this guy's a total badass he probably kick all your asses but he's gonna be a handful you know well you guys take care now that kind of bothered me about the book i thought Bloodstrike was supposed to be a covert team where like you wouldn't think bad rock and them would know about him like they're so hush hush because they're doing really really black ops wet work type stuff and it seems like everybody in young blood just knows who they are well they're still government they're still working out of the pentagon if you notice project born again is also based in washington dc it's very incestuous i think that they all are familiar with each other that are working within those circles by the same token you've got the ci guys like Wynn and before he died Al Simmons and they're all kind of intermingled so even though they're different lines different creators there's a lot of crossover there you even get some crossover into Wildcats but that's more of a brigade thing okay the general public isn't supposed to know about Bloodstrike but Youngblood seems to be perfectly familiar with them right off the bat Chapel and Cabot are definitely not clicking yeah well see the thing is that the team okay it's hated first sight and the, the other members of the team try to get Cabot to step up and try to retake his leadership and Cabot was like, no, nah, I'm not going to fucking do that shit. And yet he still ends up stepping up and talking to Chapel and they fucking hate each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chapel doesn't want to be there. He sees it as a demotion. Bloodstrike doesn't want him there because they already have their team the way they like it. They're already comfortable with each other. So it's a new element that doesn't want to be there that's going to create this chaos that our story is going to feed well, off and of. He, and he shits all over them. He, he thinks they're fucking oh, yeah, zombies and they're gross. Them, uh, and he, cause them uh, walking, what, suit bags or something like that? Skin bags? Yeah. Refers to them as zombies. I mean, he throws it in their face what they are, which is definitely not a team player move. Yeah. Well, um, and then by the same token, Cabot somehow knows that Chapel killed his best friend, and Chapel wants to know how the fuck he got his personnel followed to even know that fucking shit, and they again start beating the shit out of each other over the, yes. the mutual animosity. The Covenant is a little concerned with Chapel joining the team because they're afraid it's going to throw a wrench in their plan because well, I, he's kind of a wild card. Right, but also I think one of the members of the Covenant of the Sword thinks that they might be able to recruit him because he's so pissed off and everything else. So Yeah, they can use 
use it to their favor, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we see Max, the gentleman who had the displeasure of entertaining Tag for an evening. And he, you can see where his flesh is all rotting away. And he's taunting, yeah. calling his doctors. And the doctors are like, it's going to go away. Don't worry about it. And he's really concerned because he's trying to not. He wants to now find the woman. He wants to find Tag to figure out what's going on with him. Tag, she's turned on by Chapel. She hints at she finds him sexy. And um, one of their major subplot is that you have the private investigator firm Heaton and oh, yes. Rotheray and the mother of a, a serial killer victim. Her arms were missing and her eyes were missing. And so she's and trying to hire several bodies like that. Yeah, and apparently there's more than one person in Virginia that's turned up this way, these innocent young women. And so the cops won't investigate it, so she tries to hire the private investigators to find out what's going on with these women. And he's a dick about it. He's like, well, you know, serial killers aren't new, but they're all linked to this one club. And that's what kind of piques his interest. And so, yeah, that's another sub-story. Cabot and Chapel are beating each other up. Shogun gets in the middle, tells him to hold back. Chapel says he'll he'll slow down as soon as he knocks Cabot's head off. Four plays holding Cabot in place. That's when the big boss walks in and basically tells everybody who's who and what's going to happen. And yeah, this is uh, Mr. Noble. The, Noble, yeah, the Every boss. fucking, I swear, every fucking Liefeld team has a smarmy white guy who smokes leading the group. Their government contact dude that runs roughshod over them. <laughs> So you say he has a architect? What do you call him? He definitely has a type, yeah, because you got Graves over Youngblood's home team. You got Kiever over the away team. You've got Noble over Bloodstrike. You've got Temple over Heavy Metal for as long as they're around over at Gate Industries. Like, they're all the same dude, basically. Christopher Priest used one with Black Panther. Michael J. Fox type character? Yeah, but what was what was the name of that character that was always hanging around with Black Panther? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head now. Okay. He had a term for it. I can't remember now. So we're on to number eight eight it's the last of the two cover jay lee series unfortunately he only does a two once again we get the fucking badass chapel but also the whole team looking cool as shit okay as dark as jay lee's imagery was in that time period this is probably one of the more perfect images of Bloodstrike to reflect the darkness of the series mm-hmm. so in this one we see chapels laying in bed tag jumps in bed with him she's trying to hook it up he actually blows a hole in her then the rest of Bloodstrike shows up it turns out tag is not dead she attacks him they all begin to attack him in his sleep he's shooting them killing them blasting away they won't die spawn shows up throws it in there you know i know it was you chapel this is all in chapel's head he's just having a fucking nightmare yeah, he's basically. just having a dream and spawn says yeah your life is shattered and it's all your own goddamn fault cabot is still upset that he no longer has control of the team bitch at the upper management chapel is also trying to get out of the team but he's notified that he's exactly where jason Wynn wants him so he's not going anywhere suck it up max is now at the hospital slowly decomposing his buddy dr john lets him know that no you really are your body's like rotting away dude uh. yeah and so he makes it his mission to find tag to figure out you know i guess try to find a cure or find a way to survive this shogun is getting the suit talking to foreplay he mentions that him and his suit are communicating foreplay sees him as a strange little man <laughs> canadian wolverine smacks the shit out of tag because apparently well, tag wanted see, some you, quick you action keep saying canadian wolverine but wolverine's canadian so yeah but the canadian suit is he like extra maple wolverine i'm telling you dude, he's extra kind and polite tim horton's wolverine well you know i don't know how you get more wolverine. Well, well they they made sure to put the layfield pockets around his thighs which just look ridiculous the change in writer is starting to be more well, in the dialogue you 
can uh, notice it in the dialogue. Especially, man, I, for some reason he decides to write Chapel like he's Mr. T, and it's racially pretty squicky. His dialogue goes to some problematic places, I think, by the time the issue's done. With Tag, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that when Giffen was still writing her, it seemed like she was the good girl who secretly had the dark side to her. But in this issue, you got Forearm, Chapel, and Deadlock all slut-shaming her. She's being written as being like overtly promiscuous, and in the dream sequence, she's trying to fuck Chapel. Yeah. They're going to figure out which STD is worse between them, I guess. So yeah, things are getting bad fucked up instead of cool, fun fucked up. Yeah. They've kind of lost their... Uh, mojo. Mojo, yeah. The thing that made them cool. And then um, the uh, private investigator, Heaton, learns that a serial killer was amputating arms without anesthesia over periods as long as six months. Oh, yeah, because they, yeah, they, the an- they found the anesthesia in the bodies. That's right. And so I don't think you did anything from the Extreme Prejudice crossover, so I'll, I'll cover 9 through 10. Uh, okay. The tie-ins were all plotted by Rob Liefeld. One of the issues has this fun JL of A-style headshots where it's like almost like a Brady Bunch kind of thing where you've got the headshot and the name of the character and it makes Bloodstrike seem like they're a normal super team instead of fucking deviant and miserable fucks. So Mr. Noble reports to Prather of Covenant of the Sword about the situation. What had happened was an earthquake destroyed Quantum Base which was located at the bottom of the sea. Quantum Base was holding this super powerful new gene figure called Quantum and it turns out Quantum is the father of both Cabot and Battlestone and he's essentially Magneto. He had formed this sanctuary for new gene positive people to be at and the Brotherhood of Man had raided it and killed the mother of his children and his wife and he went nuts and then a group of heroes I think including a younger version earlier version of Youngblood managed to take down the guy and put him in Quantum Base but now he's loose again and so he wants his sons to join him in destroying the Brotherhood of Man and retaliating against humankind as a whole and they're like nah dog all these super teams get to get together Bloodstrike Brigade Team Youngblood they're all having to join forces because this quantum dude is so fucking powerful what ultimately happens is that Quantum accidentally kills Cabot he just blasts a hole through the dude but not before Cabot is able to put a device on Quantum that strips him of his powers allowing the superheroes to capture him again Cabot in death finally earned Chapel's respect but then Battlestone was disrespecting him and so Chapel fucking punches him for not having the same regard for his own brother that Chapel was feeling for the guy and at Cabot's request it appears as though they finally allow him to die and stay dead and that's where this iteration of Bloodstrike ends it's going to become a completely different book with issue number 11 or technically mm-hmm. it becomes a different book with issue 25 because once they come back from the jump to 25 they continue that story in issue 11 I don't want to touch on that it's a whole different title and so that really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about so instead we're going to jump to Brutalists number 2 which is the fill-in for issue 23 that was never previously published this is the Michelle Fife story again so there's a flashback and we see that while the Bloodstrike team was recovering for Supreme's assault you know that Tag was the only one that came out of that doing okay that's when she went out looking for some more sexing and even though she likes to try to change up where she goes she decided to go back to one of her regular haunts which is going to make life a little bit easier for some of the people that are looking for her are we talking about Tag you're it yeah damn I love this artwork we're seeing the night after she slept with Max she leaves Max Max wakes up of course we're seeing it from the perspective of Max where he's freaking out because the skin is falling off this actually looks way better than in the other books oh yeah this you, one, like, you, you I really mean, get he touches the, the mirror and he melting. leaves like a smear mark you know that's just his flesh falling off of his body mm-hmm. we get a recap of Supreme fucking him up we've mentioned several times the Return of the Living Dead connection one of the things that made those zombies different they're sentient or at least semi-sentient depending on how devolved they are there's a real strong element of body horror in Return that you don't see so much in the other zombies they really are full-on zombies decomposing while still having 
having their minds at least for a while and this guy's experiencing that same brundle fly body horror where he's just yes. his breast oh, that's just, a very good yeah. pull on that one yeah definitely the fly vibe and of course we see the detective he's starting to piece together that all these women were working the same club yeah they, they finally revealed to the other guy roth ray was apparently on vacation that whole time and that's why we never get to see that member of the pi group i didn't notice that yeah he's uh, the guy max, who does all the investigating uh, heaton is the max, one of the two yeah okay uh max goes back to the club where he met tag he's talking to the bartender saying he really needs to see her bartender's like hey y'all seem to really hit it off y'all seem like a good couple i don't know where she's at maybe the waitress who used to work with her might know max freaks out and says he really needs to see her you see like literally chunks of flesh falling off of him when he pounds his hand on the desk he begs the guy please i was always a good tipper to you the guy says all right i'll call up the waitress the waitress says that she kind of remembers working with her escapes no, what was it? What was the name of the club? Uh, there's an adult club of ambiguous nature called Dense Noir. Dense, yeah, Dense Noir. And that's where our story's going to all come together. Doesn't the detective also figure out that that's the club where all the girls were working together yeah, at the same yeah, time? Yeah, and Tag goes back there because that's one of her haunts. She used to work there as a coat check girl before she quit to go join Youngblood. And of course, rather than Youngblood, she ended up signing up for Bloodstrike. She meets Eric with a K, who's a homely looking guy. He's not her usual, like she says, Max. She actually remembers Max. Yeah, he's a good looking guy. He was her type. Yeah, and so she kind of, you know, well, she's slumming it right now. It's just a quickie. He's escorting her to one of the rooms there at the club, or I guess they have private rooms. Yeah, so he goes, pretty clearly what? that's probably some kind of brothel or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking more kind of along the lines of um, hostel, you know, where they have these private rooms where you can do whatever well, you want in there, it, and I'm it, assuming... It certainly turns out that way. Yes, that way, that's the direction it goes. But I'm assuming maybe the clients own that room. Like, they rent it almost like a, a safety deposit box, mm-hmm. and only they have the keys to it so they can keep it do whatever they want in it. It's a private space for them. He tries to chloroform her, but she's able to tag him before it goes into effect. She freezes him. She decides to do a little snooping around his room, and that's where she finds the other girls in various degrees of being surgically altered or dismembered. I would say harvested. One girl, both she just has empty sockets where they took her eyes. Another girl's got arms missing, which you knew went to forearm, and there's being kept alive but dismembered. Now wait, was he given the parts to blood strike or was it? He's doing this as a person. I, I think that that was the impression I was under is that he was doing it for Bloodstrike, but it might have been that he was an extracurricular and they just benefited from it. It's it's okay. left uh, up to the reader, I think. Okay, yeah, because I kind of wasn't sure if he was doing it for Bloodstrike or this was just a serial killer doing this shit on his own time and they catch him. Tag decides, you know what, I'm going to turn him in so we can do something with him and maybe save the girls. Yeah, he she, she, she takes them all to Project Born Again with hope they is, can help the girls. Yeah, and it turns out they can't help the girls because they don't have the gene in them so they'll try to do the best they can and that's where they collude now that well poor play she is out of arms and we, we're running low on arms and eyes yeah so whether or and, not it was a serial killer dismembering those girls for blood strike ultimately they still get harvested by blood strike so really no improvement in their situation no they actually get what body slid, slid back into their hometowns close to hometowns yeah it, it basically without... reveals that the reason why these dismembered girls kept popping up in various counties is that they teleport what they don't need into some field somewhere always these are poor girls from poor counties that can't afford to investigate why they're dying so nobody's yeah. ever going to do give them any kind of justice and tag came from those same kind of places so she knows she's basically one of those girls and she she managed yes. to get it out but they clearly did not and then of course it turns out that eric's family is linked to the covenant he's a member so, he's a full-on huh? member he's a full-on member of the covenant of the sword they even show him in uniform and shit so yeah absolutely so nothing happens to him, him either yeah he's he's just cut loose and i mean cut um, loose like he's not arrested he, he just goes right back to work apparently so then we see blood strike is still being 
scene. Rebirth. Tag is upset about this. She decides she's going to do something about it. At the same time, Max is looking for it. He finds the club. I thought this was cool. A little art. He's hitting the door trying to get in. He knows that she's in there. A security guard comes out to confront him. By this time, Max has mentally lost it. The guard shoots Max, leaves his bloody corpse on the ground. Max gets up one more time. The guard is shot twice by another guard. Well, no, it's not a guard, dude. That's the private investigator. Okay, that's okay. I'm sorry. That's right. The private investigator's there. They fight. The private investigator strikes, shoots Max. The guard is the one that shoots an investigator from the back with some kind of laser. That's right, because he has the covenant insignia on his gun. He walks up, opens the door that they were both trying to get into. Tag touches his nose, freezes him. Apparently, she is going through the files. It's sad because she doesn't realize that's Max on the ground. Yeah. But she even had, though she doesn't even though that guy did tell her to be careful about having sex because of the consequences that can come from it. Because mm-hmm. I think they know the mixing of whatever they whatever chemicals they use to bring them back is very toxic to her human beings. Yeah. And, and she so completely Max, ignores that. So that's she, which shows that she's maybe not as fucked up as the other guys, but she's still pretty fucked up because she's still. Oh, yeah. There's no telling how many Maxes there are out there melting to nothingness. True. She sets the building on fire, destroys everything. Because of this, the Covenant comes in and decides to shut down Project Rebirth. Well, I think and so they it, create it's clones, not, don't it's they? It's not really that. What it is, uh, Bloodstrike was ripped to shit again by Quantum. And so while they're on the mend, Tag goes to her black scientist friend at Project Born Again, Sean, and asks him to go ahead and clone the members of Bloodstrike because she's got a plan. She turns over the evidence she gathered at the club to the media. Bloodstrike is already rendered public by the events of the Extreme Prejudice crossover. So they've become more and more of an embarrassment. They shut down the serial killer stuff and all this other kind of shit. It's cumulative, though. It's not just mm. the one thing that Tag does. It's all the shit that's been happening around Bloodstrike and how many people had problems with that group in the first place. Okay, and so what? The team is now on the road? Yeah, so what she sets up is there are still versions of the Bloodstrike members in service to the government if they want them, but those are the clones. They're not the real ones. And so Tag, Shogun, Forearm, and Deadlock all get to secretly retire while the clones take their place. And then the Washington Post picks up the killer cop story, and so that's how they kind of address what was going on in the club, but not really. Mm-hmm. And you know, ultimately, Eric probably gets away with it. All these people are fucked up and evil and murderous, and they all kind of get away with it, ultimately. But at least we have a conclusion now to the story. Yes, you finally, after decades of wanting to see what happened to Max with the zombie VD, you finally get the resolution on that. Yes. We talked about it. That was the one thing that drove me crazy about Bloodstrike was the whole banging zombies and what would happen to you. And I'm kind of glad that, you know, he brought that to a closure for me personally after, I don't know, how many years now? Oh, shit. 25, roughly? Okay, I was going to say 25, but I don't want to be off, be accused of overmathing it there. But yeah, no, I loved it. I ended up reading 24. I read 0, 23, and it was like, fuck it, I got to finish it out. So I read 24 to finish it out, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it, it was definitely a blast. I'm happy with it. It's one of those few times where you get a good conclusion to a story. It was worth the wait. That's in a lot given there was 20 some odd years wait for that resolution but it was a I'll tell you dude it was in the back of my head that whole time I remember I remember bringing it up to you a few years ago before I even knew anything about this book well I mean he did it he did the story arc like what happens to Max he got like, the I wanted to know what happened to Max for, for the rest of us it was just a fun story for you this was an emotional closure of a wound that left open for decades yes i never seen a moon like that yeah I that's so big and cold oh Weird, eerie shit always happens when you have a moon like that. Straight up. I don't like it.
Now that I have everybody's attention, let's get this over with real quick, okay? Maybe Al? Uh, Al? Oh, is Al the guy who knows things around here? Okay, well, let's go talk to Al. Where? Where? Hey, you're gonna have to speak up if you want to be heard. With Bloodstrike out of commission, Chapel guest starred in Shadowhawk number 12, seeking a cure for HIV in New York. The supposed cure ended up being a trap, so Chapel moved on. In the Chapel miniseries, issues one through two of two, we see Bruce Stenson spending his days laying about in his apartment, hard drinking, reliving his past glories. He recalled his assassination of Colonel Black in 1983 and how Black had sent his soul into a demonic statue. Between Black and his encounter with the infernally resurrected Al Simmons, Chapel came up with an idea. Something tells me the more I can learn about Simmons, the closer I'll be to finding my way out of this rut. Al's the key. I have to find him to open the lock. Maybe in death, there is light. So that continues into a single page epilogue in Youngblood number seven by Rob Liefeld, Eric Stevenson, Danny Meeky, and Jonathan Sabal. We see Chapel go full commando with excessive arms and bunny ear apple seed headgear. He exits his Washington, D.C. apartment. So it's a series of caption boxes where Bruce Denson is saying to himself, I ain't going to take this no more. My days of playing the patsy for the godforsaken government are over. I'll be damned if I'll be shepherd to those bloodstrike zombies anymore. And I'll be damned if I'm letting Jason Wynn keep calling the shots on my life. Lying sack of trash. Time you learned, Wynn. I ain't your boy no more. Yeah, I've taken about all the crap I'm willing to take. I think it's time I exercised some of my world-famous generosity and started to give a little. Starting with my good old buddy, Al Simmons. And by the way, I always hear, and I know I'm not doing the voice because I wasn't you know, expecting to do this. I always hear Wesley Snipes when I'm reading <laughs> Chapel Dialogue. Am I mistaken? He always kind of sounds like Simon no, Beats to me I, I in see, my head I when hear, I'm reading uh, it. I hear, what's his name? Uh, Michael White? Michael J. White? Michael J. White? So you hear ch- yeah. him as Chapel rather than as Spawn. Yes. David Keith will always be my Spawn. Right. So David Keith's Spawn and Michael J. White's Chapel. I can see that. I, that actually sort of kind yeah. of makes sense to me. Yeah. I haven't seen the actual movie in ages, but I have seen Jai White in a variety of movies, particularly because I always kind of wanted him to play Bronze Tiger if DC ever did that. And there's still a chance since apparently that's not who Idris Elba is going to be playing in Suicide Squad like a lot of people thought. Yeah. So yeah, I have an easier time hearing him as Chapel, That makes sense. Every time I hear him talk, he has the attitude of Chapel. Even in the Spawn movie, the way he carries himself felt more like Chapel, like this arrogance about him. Where David Keith, he just has that deep growl in his voice. So when, when he's suffering, you feel it in his voice. You need that voice to pay off the whiny bitchness. Like you got to counterbalance that with him just having those great big huevos well, and that deep I, testosterone baritone. I just always think back to Gargoyles, the Disney animated series where he played Goliath, the leader of the Gargoyles. And that voice in this supernatural creature was perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Even in a cartoon, the Spawn comic, it was just, the cartoon was perfect. That deep growl of suffering. Where I hear Michael J. White when he does the Spawn movie and he's just, he's arrogant. He's so fucking Chapel, dude. Mm-hmm. They should have just made that a Chapel movie. Makes sense. Dude, that would have been actually kind of cool. You do a Chapel movie first that leads into the Spawn at the end. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would have loved it. I, I really wish we'd gotten a cinematic Chapel. Yeah, that would have been cool. Still time. Still time. We carry on the story into Youngblood number eight and we get six pages out of that that are taking place in the midst of a, there's a young blood battle going on elsewhere but they keep flashing back over to what's happening with Spawn and Chapel. You hear Shaft and uh, Lightfield there talking about some kind of battle as they're flying over a jet over New York and Spawn is sitting there hanging out with his boys and they're all laughing at a campfire and Spawn's just kind of sitting there and again were these all like one shots or? Yeah they're just like a few pages. This, this were, There were okay. six pages out of this one issue devoted to the Spawn stuff. And they just talk about how you know these men without direction though they may be do have a home 
and that is the city, its streets, these alleys. Seen through their eyes, it's all comprised their castle and their keep, and this is their king. And then it just talks about Spawn. It's so funny, you wouldn't read the chapel dialogue, but you would go into the fucking <laughs> caption box. You know, let's set the mood for an alley in New York City, because we've never been here before over the course of 26 fucking episodes of this goddamn show. Yes. <laughs> it's just, God, it feels like we recap every fucking issue. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to get that, uh, that running uh, feeling. It's, it's Groundhog Day, but with necroplasm, yes. Yeah. And so their buddies are all laughing in a bag. They're telling him to quit being such a poop, which was weird. <laughs> and so they're all laughing, and they're joking. Spawn decides he's leaving for the evening, and all of a sudden, one of them gets shot in the head. Brutal. See, this is important because Spawn's in a mood, and the other homeless guys are, like, talking to Bobby. And Bobby's, like, the lead homeless guy that's been in Spawn throughout the course of the series. And they're like, you better not mess with me or I'll zap you. And it's like, man, I'm the guy who stitched all the old hamburger head's face. Nobody's going to be zapping me. And then, boom, he gets zapped by fucking chap. And you see him yeah. shot through the head. We just kill the main supporting character in Spawn that isn't previously married with him or from his previous... Like, like the, one of the only people from the life Spawn's living now that's still been hanging out with him is now just dead, just like that. Brutally dead. Chapel's not done. He's capping every homeless guy at his fucking wake. Some guy I don't know named Chaz gets killed. They're running to Spawn like, dude, dude, this guy's killing everybody. He blew Bobby's head off. And then, of course, that's when we see Chapel roll up looking pretty fucking fierce. And then they give him a full-page splash where he's, I can kill these guys all day, but I'm really here for you, dude. And so many pockets. Oh, yes. And the fuck, boys with the fucking rabbit ears, man. Who thought that was a good idea? Holy shit, they all had that stuff. Yeah, that's really weird, dude. It's like manga, was it a manga, manga-ish? Very manga. It's weird. It's it's one of those things where you take something out of context that really needs to be in context to make a lick of fucking sense and not look fucking ridiculous. But Um, the pockets, my man. The pockets. (laughs) Another thing, too, is you've got that full-page splash of Chapel, and if you look, his legs got, like, armor cracked and stuff, and he's bleeding. He's bleeding HIV all over the fucking place. Who the fuck made him bleed? Who Did one of the homeless guys put up, like, a major fight against his gigantic fucking hand cannons? I I just assumed that was blood from the homeless people. It must be somebody else's blood, you'd hope, yeah. Yeah. Chapel has taken all the elements we've seen from Spawn, deduced that Al was the Spawn, and what he was up to, and and, and tracked him down to the alley he was in. He also makes a point, knowing that he has all this necromantic power, he's checked Spawn, because he's basically saying, look, I've just killed a bunch of your buddies, you're going to take some power to deal with this. Either you're going to give that power to your buddies to try to help them, or you're going to use that power to fight me. Either way, you're going to be wasting your power. What's it going to be, Al? You want to talk to me about what's going on with you, so I can know what your deal is and how you came back from the dead, or are you going to waste a bunch of power with a big old fight? It's clear to me that Chapel is way smarter than Al Simmons, and frankly, much scarier. He's just a dangerous, dangerous dude, and I think they do a really good job of showing that, because you can see how much he accomplishes over the span of a few pages, versus what Spawn's managed in 26 fucking issues. Amen. It makes sense now, because I read 26 and 27 first, and then I read this, and now mm-hmm. 27 makes more sense now. Right, right. That's Sorry, I tried to catch you before you got to 27. Yeah. So then we get over into Youngblood number 10, which is the final issue of the original series, and again, they're intercutting between what was happening in the Youngblood adventure and this side story between Chapel and Spawn. So Youngblood number 10 announces the death of Chapel right there on the cover, so you kind of know where this is all leading. The big finale of this little side story, Chapel explains that his whole story, he gives his recap, and they also give you a recap of Spawn's origin, and we're going to remind me a lot of was the old Jim Starlin recap from Captain Marvel and Warlock and Dreadstar, where he would take a few pages and he would actually illustrate what the fuck happened, so it wasn't just a bunch of boring-ass text. He'd get you all caught up what you really needed to know for that issue, and no extraneous shit, and then you'd actually start telling the motherfucking story. It's funny, Rob Liefeld seemed to learn that lesson, because he gives us 
the backstory of Chapel, but not in as great of a detail because he knows that we've probably been reading the Youngblood stuff since we're Youngblood fans. We're reading the Youngblood issue in front of us, apparently. And so he does a text recap of what happened in, in Youngblood Strike File. But with Spawn, not assuming that everybody knows Spawn's story, he gives you a brief origin sequence and tells you about how Spawn and Chapel relate to each other. And then you can move on to the fucking story. It's nice that there is action and they get to that action without wasting our time with all this fucking extra recapping. This is one area where Rob Liefeld can claim superiority in writing over Todd McFarlane for short. But what ultimately ends up happening is Spawn's telling him, dude, my life is fucked up. I made a huge mistake. You don't want this. And Chapel's like, fuck you, I don't want this. My life's been swirling down the toilet ever since when fucked my shit up and I got this fucking HIV in my body. I'm nothing but the walking dead already anyway. So I might as well take this challenge on. If what you had to do was die and get to the devil to make the deal to become Spawn, I want that too. And so he puts this gigantic Liefeld gun to his head and blows his fucking head off. And I remember we were talking before about how there was this uproar amongst retailers about how violent Bloodstrike was. And I remember this specific issue also pissed off a bunch of retailers because you see the meat coming off of them. You see bits of brain flying. You see an eyeball going. You've also got technology because those rabbit ear things are part of what's getting blasted. So it's one instance where those stupid fucking things actually made sense and were effective in the visual. And it's a two-page spread. So they, they were kind of pissed off about that. If I remember correctly, I think I was already working as a retailer at this point. So I remember opening that page up and going like, holy shit, there's a two-page spread of some pretty extreme violence from Rob Liefeld. I do think there's an element of Rob basically saying, fuck you, this is the last issue anyway. I'm going to do what the fuck I want to do. And it did make a fucking impression for sure. So head's gone. It's funny. There's a credit where it's Rob Liefeld after S. Platt. So I don't know if he was like, maybe he laid out the sequence or maybe there's some sequence in the issue of Profit that I haven't seen where Platt does the same thing and Liefeld just sort of homages it. I don't know. It was a weird little addendum. And then they go back to the Youngblood story and at the very end, one of the members, the one that's their side blade or their Psylocke, whatever the fuck, she basically senses a disturbance in the force. She knows that one of their friends has died and that there's terrible consequences to this. And at the end, we see a shot of the alleyway where Chapel's lying with the head completely gone. It's just not there anymore. And then you set, have all these uh, hellscape around him. And then you see like a version of Chapel that has devil horns and is basically satanic and appears to have gone on the same course for some similar journey as Al Simmons had, alluding to a big crossover that's coming up that we're not going to have time to fool with right now. This is what we've been building towards, what we had to get to before we got to Spawn 27, is Chapel going on the same journey as Al Simmons did. Mm -hmm. Spawn's time with Chapel is sort of at an end here to some degree. There will be some other meetings in the future, but the lion's share of the journey that Chapel has put himself on now by shooting himself is going to happen in Extreme Titles, and we're going to try to get to those as soon as we can, but we've really got to cover some ground that we've missed trying to reach this point knowing that it was going to tie directly into Spawn. So this is what we work towards. That's finished and we can move on from here. Okay. I enjoyed seeing Liefeld draw Spawn. I wouldn't want to see it on a regular basis, but it was fun to see his quirky style applied to Spawn. And I just like that you had a story with a progression that reached a conclusion and got me excited about what's coming up next. It's something I wish Todd McFarlane was doing in the main title. <laughs> Kill me. Kill me! Finish it! There's no coming back. No. I'm gonna let you live. Longer than you want to. <laughs> no. No! You can't do this to me. 
I killed him. He came back from the dead. No one can come back. But he did. Why, Jess? I can't. Why? They're coming back. I can't. Oh, my God. They're coming back. Spawnometer episode 21, Youngblood Yearbook Tumblr art feed was liked and reblogged by Bush007. The episode 25, the Image Zero episode on Tumblr was liked by Flair Joe. Fran Ho Gutierrez art, S Seals 618, and Supreme Being 24, and was also reblogged by Flair Joe. On Facebook, we were either liked or shared by Blake Hyman, Derek William Crabb, Matt Hickman, Michael Wagner, and Paolo Marquez Jr. On Twitter, we got that Spawn Levin. From 20th Century Geek Podcast, The 108th Sage, Adriano, All the Pouches and Image Comics Podcast, Andrea Rica, Dr. Ange, Baby Skeletor, Biko Django, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Christopher Bush, Dario Oliveira, Delvin, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Drew at Nine Boxer Nine, Ed Moore, Fanholes Podcast, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, I Was Joe Crawford, Jason Carpenter, Jason Schmidt, Jason Snicked Venable, Jeffrey Brown, Jock Tastico, Johnny Large Meat, Keith G. Baker, King Dinosaur, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Christados, Let Them Fear Your Demons, Miracle Man, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Odell Abner Dracula, Relatively Geeky, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard G., Schlocktopus Inc., Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, SJW James Bond, Wants Nazis Band, at Agent of Girl, Sue Kent Ant, Talk Dirty to Me, Tim Price the Podcrasher, Trans Lesbian Planet Eater, Trekker Talk, X51, Eric Stacks Comics, Xenozoic Files and Zendal 42. Let Them Fear Your Demons said of the Image Zero episode, this looks awesome. Richard G wrote, I love getting tagged on the Spawn O Meter. Pow! I need to join you guys on one of these podcasts over Discord someday. Love what you did on the Image and Spawn content here. Jeffrey Brown wrote, Oh yeah, now this cheers me up. The Valentine's Day issue of Youngblood was covered by Linkara. LOL, now that I thought was hilarious, it's kind of how I heard about this Image X over month. Okay, I will say that I have both versions of Savage Dragon 13 and Wildcats 14 uh, because I like how Eric Larson just had fun on the page well to me that is uh, the McFarlane Cyber Force issue I have just for the cover didn't like the story in hindsight I like Sylvester's spawn art Richard Bent's inks over Jim Lee's pencils on Savage Dragon 13 was always very off to me and Dragon wearing all those straps and pouches reminded me of the action figure they made in 96 when the cartoon came out Eric Larson would later draw him with straps and pouches I do have Shadowhawk number zero and I really like how the 
art Liefeld did kind of looked like Scott Labdell's and Frank Miller's with the high contrast colors. It's one of my few books by Liefeld I liked. And then Odell Abner Dracula finished out with started work on a Shadowhawk reboot and finished it. This is the whole thing right here. Done. Hashtag rebooted and featured some art of the character that we'll have on the blog. Shadowhawk is like if Wolverine made Batman pregnant on prom night and they left the baby in an empty case of Mountain Dew on John Claude Van Damme's porch. Me, I'd like to work on a new Shadowhawk series. Everyone, the financial analysis indicates that to afford this, you'd have to move your family into a homeless shelter. Me, I'd like to be an unpaid freelance consultant on a new Shadowhawk series that someone else finances. The devil was once the most beautiful and favored of all the heavenly host. But once infected with the sin of pride, he was cast out of the Lord's sight into the farthest depths of hell. In his humiliation, the devil raged, "'Tis better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. My offspring, the October Pod, will one day conquer mankind and all the Lord's works. And so, reborn once each month at 1.38 a.m., by man's reckoning of time, the October Pod rises from its slumber, seeking what bold individualists it may devour." Edward October presents October Pod, a terrifying spook show. Available now on YouTube, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and at OctoberPodVHS.com. October Pod, retro horror for bold individualists. Adventures into the unknown. Tales from the crypts. Skeleton hand. The haunt of fear. Dark shadows. Vampirella. The haunted tank. The heap. Eerie. Swamp thing. Weird mysteries. Tomb of Dracula. Tales of the unexpected. Werewolf by night. The demon. Man-Thing Monster of Frankenstein Brother Voodoo The Son of Satan Night Force The Living Mummy The Sandman Tomb of Darkness Evil Ernie Saga of the Swamp Thing Flinch Hellblazer Thirty Days of Night Preacher the Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown, to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, to the Tomb of Dracula, may be found in the Long Box of Darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the long box of darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals, to the long box of darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night. And pleasant screams. <laughs> Thank you.
haunted swamps to creepy castles, the podcasting hour is your home for horror on the Fire and Water Network. Join me, PJ Frightful, on this quarterly anthology podcast that gazes into the mysterious and terrifying shadows of DC Comics. The moon is full and the bell tolls for midnight, the podcasting hour. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!